Hey guys, this is Jordan, your show host, and also one of the founders of the Tribe Mastermind. I just wanted to give you guys a little shout out to let you know that we got something special going on with Tribe Mastermind. This is a high level mastermind for property management entrepreneurs that are interested in talking about the big picture. Yes, most certainly business, the tactical, the strategic, but also the big why behind why we're on this journey together. So if you're interested in learning more about Tribe, what this mastermind looks like, you can get more details at tribemastermind.com. Check it out. Love to see you there. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome closer to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Wayla, talking as quickly as possible as usual. Today, I have my esteemed guest, Ray Hespin from Property Meld. Ray, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic, man. Thanks for having me. It's warmer weather here than in South Dakota. Yeah, you've been dealing with some some epic weather out there lately. Sometimes it makes me wonder why I moved back to the area, but no, I'm <clears throat> I'm waiting for the summertime. It's coming. I know it is. So you clawed your way out of the snow to be here to have a, a conversation to talk about entrepreneurship, business, the hustle, the industry. For those that don't know, what is Property Melt? Um, so we're a maintenance automation software. We started back in idea formed in 2013. We had uh, you know company company formally formed in 2014, and basically our our job is um, to automate a lot of the maintenance coordination process for um, property management firms. Um, so all the stuff, the you know the troubleshooting, the following up on repairs, and and making sure that they get done, making sure the residents happy. Our job is to automate all that. Cool. All right. Maintenance, kind of a hairy issue. It's really important. Big pain point for a lot of folks. <clears throat> you decided to go after that. What I want to hear more about is the story of Ray. Property meld product, it's interesting, but behind that are people hustling, grinding, building stuff. Is this your first rodeo? It is my first rodeo. I mean, as I kind of joked with you earlier, I was, uh, I, I, you know, when I was eight or nine, I think I sold pop cans on the side of the road, just okay. like any, any kid hustle, trying man. to make money. Um, I found uh, when I was in high school, I moved out of my house early. Uh, I was an idiot. Um, but anyways, I, uh, we had a hailstorm and I found I, I knew how to roof houses. So I would roof houses for teachers that I knew. Um, then I became a personal trainer. So I've always kind of had a little bit of an entrepreneurial bug, um, but never ran anything beyond uh, one employee. All right, but the flavor of entrepreneurship is always kind of influenced by your experiences. You had some background in kind of a commercial manufacturing kind of setting, is that correct? <clears throat> yeah, so I actually graduated um, with a mining engineering degree, which people usually kind of cock their head at me a little bit because they're like, what are you doing in property management, real estate tech software? Um, and, and what happened is, so I graduated in 09 and I, I went to the cement manufacturing industry and I'll tell you if anybody remembers 08, 09, right before then it was, I mean, it was an industry that was printing money. Uh, I got wine and dine. Well, 09 was happening and the construction materials market followed the housing market and it's like, hey, thanks for coming. Yeah, all that stuff, like we need to cut every single job. So I was, I got an actual awesome opportunity to um, uh, I worked at uh, four or five different plants in a, in a pretty short period of time. They just kept moving me. Um, 
But every step along the way it was how do we do same or more with less. So basically what I was tasked with is going in, reducing fixed costs, streamlining, ensuring the process is really good. It was kind of like my gift. Um, <clears throat> and so even up into the last job that I had uh, was in Baltimore um, and I was responsible for making sure a plant could survive a 40% fixed cost cut, um, which was pretty massive. Um, so anyways, that was kind of the, the role I had right before, but it kind of all, as I've been thinking about it, has led it to automating and streamlining maintenance. It's, I mean, you go from just reducing fixed costs, process, streamlining, um, moving that over in the property management space. So the universe conspired to bring you over to maintenance and residential property management. That's awesome. Let's talk a little bit more about the the kind of the operational side of sales and marketing. What's interesting to me about you is that you're you're into sales and marketing, right? Like I just get it, like your vibe, like you kind of feed <laughs> off of that. But the approach to it, what I've observed is that your approach is a little bit more systematized and that really resonates with me. I talk a lot about operationalizing sales and marketing. You got sales as a as a Western, right? A uh, cowboy mm -hmm. and Indian show of just personality, charisma. Mm -hmm. A lot of people believe like that is the core gifting and skill set. But when you look at high growth companies, mm -hmm. they're an enterprise model. That's not what's happening. Mm -hmm. There's order, there's structure. What does that look like inside of property mail? You guys have grown really aggressively. Mm -hmm. talk, about, talk to me about how you've approached sales and marketing. So, I mean, and it's kind of like a discipline throughout the company, right? Like you think about it, even for, you know, from the from the touch points of working with the customer on a service issue, like how that gets funneled, when it gets elevated, how a customer gets onboarded, and you keep working yourself back to sales, like um, you systematize the if is that a, is that a real word? Systematize the the entire process from the moment you engage with them. Um, so we are, you know, one of the things I was telling you is is we don't we have a very specific process. We follow demand gen model. Um, so, anyways, like. Uh, we have certain people that qualify and make sure that you know they're a good fit and then they hand off to sales if it's the right fit and there's a process for each step of the way and what that allows you to do is scale um, so you know one of the things is the amount of bodies we've got to add in a single year I can't have any I can't bring anybody up and allow everybody to do their own thing it's mm -hmm. like here you go in mm -hmm. I'm gonna give you a tool set that makes you right. super successful right. this is what you're gonna do your nuances mm. is what's going to make your conversion rates higher but you're gonna follow this process mm. right that's what's gonna separate the the good sales from the from the not as good sales is gonna be your nuances but you are gonna follow this process and so it makes it to where measuring success is a lot easier um, understanding where the breakdowns in your system are, um, but it is it, it's a it's a system through and through it. I can mathematically calculate how many phone calls each person has to make um, to get to a customer, all the way from time they engage them to connecting on the phone to getting a consultation, mm -hmm. all the mm -hmm. way through to becoming a customer. Mm -hmm. um, so it makes it scalable. Well, what's interesting is that in your case, you guys have taken on a little bit of funding, and typically with funded companies, there's more pressure, there's more accountability. It's about results. I, as the investor, put money in expecting a certain return. And for you to be able to speak to that and to provide me any level of confidence that that's going to happen, I need to know that there's a predictable model. And that predictable model cannot be based on you having uh, Derek Jeter and pool holes. It can't be these, these one-off stars that could get hit by a bus. You provide the infrastructure in there. Everybody's following the same playbook. I like that you said that your unique um, temperament and, and charisma may be kind of what allows you to really excel, but it still is going to be within this basic framework. 
talk to me about culture within the context of having these systems and processes. Um, you know, so so we are. I mean, we're we're a team first and foremost, right? Um, you know, each of us is reliant on the other person. So I mean, you know. Um, S, uh, you know, our SDRs reliant on marketing, sales is reliant on SDRs, onboarding is reliant on sales, and so we're all interconnected. Um, and so kind of a, a, a theme there that we're able to play is, you know, like, and that's the thing, I mean, we're growing very quickly. It's not, one person will not get us from where we are today to the end. And so I, I you know, the thing that I try and drill in is the system that will, because you're going to be able to replicate that. Where your value is, is how do you make the system better? Mm -hmm. So that way when we get somebody else in, we can put them in there and they're going to get us more leads. They're going to get us more demos. We're going to close more sales. Um, so, you know, I, I've, I've talked, not that I want to like say, hey, you know, you're, you're, you're not meaningful, but you're helping build a machine right? You're not the machine. You're helping build a machine. Um, it's a village. It's this collectivist exactly. ideology. <laughs> right. Not quite. No. It's a, there is children left behind in our village sometimes. But. Well, so what comes up here is the metaphor of is it a family or is it a team? Yeah. The sports team metaphor says you've earned your place here as has everybody else next to mm -hmm. you. And that's the confidence that you can have, mm -hmm. is that those people to your right and to your left, they earn their spot too. And everybody's pulling together in the same direction. And if you can't cut it, it's okay. You just probably just need to be on a different team. Exactly, exactly. And you know, the thing is too, it's not only that, and I, I don't necessarily know, I think that's a good metaphor, if you're alignment and you're kind of doing your own thing, mm -hmm. like, you know, you're, you're not, your your quarterback's gonna get sacked. Like right. you can be a great lineman, right, but right. if you just follow your own playbook, it's not gonna be uh, <laughs> that effective of a line. If you're pursuing your individual stats, like if you're trying to juice what's on your individual baseball card, mm -hmm. the team is gonna suffer. Right. Your stats may peak, but the group mm -hmm. outcome suffers. Well, well, in sales, we want people to juice their own their own uh, their own numbers because what they're going right. to do is we want to establish what's the next baseline of what's possible. Um, so we want that. We do try and create a competitive environment, but collaborative. Um, you know, and that's always tough to do. Like, you know, how do you make a collaborative and competitive? Um, and so that's something we're still trying to figure out. But no, we want. I mean, salespeople are, you know, pretty competitive for the most 100%. part. We want to leverage that, but at the same time, sit there and go, tamp it down. You know, football players, great analogy. Like all very competitive people, but. There's a, there's a method and a process to making sure that you're successful. And I think that's the messaging that works really well. It's like, I'm here to help you make more money. Absolutely. And if you follow me, I'm going to help you make more money. You go rogue, I mean. It's a way to qualify and filter salespeople on the front side. We're providing you with a platform to mm -hmm. sell and to, to, to max out your OTE, right? Your mm -hmm. on-target earnings. If you're excited about that, then this is probably a fit. If not, if you want to do it your way, probably not a fit. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about compensation. Compensation is this really charged <coughs> thing. Anytime that you have performance-based comp, you got to ask, Am I, do I know what I am actually incentivizing? Are there unintended consequences? What's your, your thoughts and your approach, maybe internally, but also for property managers at large with comp and salespeople? So, you know, I mean, uh, it's, always, it's always a dangerous game, like uh, when you can accidentally create competing objectives. Like for yeah. example, 
you know, property management, a, a big focus that I've just been paying attention to the industry is the right doors. It's I want to manage the owners that fit my particular sets. You know, whether you're somebody that measures accidental owners or you're somebody who, you know, only targets between five and ten, you don't want to just leverage a salesperson and say, just go get doors. Right. Because then you're sitting there saying, you can feed my funnel into my operation that is, you know, is not feeding me the right doors that I'm targeting. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of at a competing interest. I'm saying make less money because I don't like these leads and I like these ones. And so you have to find a way to do that. And I, I don't have the answer to that in property management, but that is something like every different section we look at, like who's managing whom and making sure that we don't have somebody who's incentivized to perform at an individual level mm -hmm. when their roles are to improve a team, mm -hmm. right? Like how do we get that really focused to where right. um, the compensation is based on the success of the team? Sure. And it's a moving target. So what's interesting to me about your story and situation is that when you're in a high growth environment, the unfortunate reality is you're intentionally breaking things. Like things were working and then somebody like you has got to come along and just keep breaking it in order to keep growing. So compensation is a great example. There is this desire to have the perfect comp model. We found it. I'll never have to change it because changing it is uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable to go to somebody and say, hey, we got it right. And then I broke it because we kept growing. And so now you're either going to get paid more or less, et cetera. How have you, how has, has comp evolved internally? Have you had to go back and retweak and adjust things? So no, I, I think our process has gone the most overhaul. Um, comp is, you know, our focus is growth and total number of doors. So it makes it, it makes it pretty simple, but you know, as our company grows and scales, we might say we've got a target segment that we're really going after and then shifting that to incentivize that more. We haven't gotten there yet, um, but uh, but I anticipate it. And I would even say like just change the whole, like one thing that's been really, I guess, fun to watch is like we've had different departments just go under pretty massive transformation and then there's times where they go under smaller amounts of transformation. But the thing that I can say about our company, even in the last like year and a half, two years, it's just constant. Like nobody feels, nobody shakes their head when you say, hey, we're changing things because that's their life and it's the world they live in. And I just love how comfortable it is for people because change management's difficult. Mm -hmm. They have entire processes and everything. Right. If you keep them in a constant state of change, they're just ready for it and they're disciplined and they know it's part of life. And they're sitting there knowing they don't have to go through the five stages of grief or whatever. Um, to get through there, but comp, comp will ultimately be part of that. But at the end of the day, I'm saying I'm going to find a way to help you win. I'm going to give you a process that's going to get you successful there, and this is what the company needs. So the, the caveat, though, is that the tolerance for change is in the context of growth. Staying at the same revenue number and constantly <coughs> changing things, that, that's just annoying. That's just dysfunctional, right? <laughs> like the change is justified based on the pace of, of the overall uh, company value accretion and revenue growth that I get to be a part of. Yeah. They, I want the, the rungs on the ladder to grow so that I can climb up, right? Yeah, that and I think one of the things that's exciting for a lot of people is, you know, I, as much as you like to do rah-rah speeches on, you know, what's going to motivate a team, like one of the things that I get really excited about and I think a lot of other people are, is you want to be on this train. Even if you're staying in the same position, you the amount that you're going to learn, the amount of companies that you're going to get to work for that can grow and scale mm -hmm. at this rate, this is your chance. Like 
you know, are, do you want to be part of this ride or do you not? And so that really resonates. So when you sit there and you say in our process, we say, hey, we're doing well in this, not in this. And we say, we need to change mm -hmm. that. Like they understand, like that's the mm -hmm. learning that's been sold mm -hmm. to them that mm -hmm. you're going to be part of mm -hmm. um, all the way through. Winning. Baby. Yeah, that's what you're talking about winning. Talk to me about the leadership function. Your job, no doubt, has changed over time. You're, the day-to-day -day stuff that you're spending time on, but the constancy is around leadership and the life that you're bringing into the organization. What lessons have you learned about leadership from, from day one till now? Uh, you know, I mean, one of the things that especially, you know, it's kind of interesting. So you went, I had 40 indirect reports before starting Property Meld, and then you go to having one direct report, right? And, uh, and so it's challenging. You almost got to like go back to basics and say, I need to learn how to manage everything by myself. And then you start growing and then you kind of go again through that learning process that I need to learn how to delegate. Um, so. The challenge has always been for me, how do I take something that I hold dearly and I care deeply about um, and hand it off? Now I'm getting so good at it because I, you know, my time is so constrained, it forces me to do that, um, that I've been uh, really easily allowing things that get out that I need to get out and I can do that very like on performance metrics, right? So if there's certain areas of our company that are doing really well, I'm easily able to ship those and hand those off. If there's other areas that I sit there and I want to focus on, that's where I move in. I still struggle, I think, um, or the thing that I'm going to continue to work on is like, how do I build up the team around me? Um, as much as I would love to say, I'm just going to hire all these people that are all just amazing and they're already vetted and they already understand our model and they understand what we're doing. How do I ask the questions to get people to start thinking the way they need to be thinking to take the company from here to where it's going to be at in 12 months? So building that leadership team, everybody kind of lusts after that, and mm -hmm. it's an aspiration that takes time. But aside from that, aside from the day-to-day -day ops, this, that, or the other task, what about just like the, the energy that you're bringing to the team? What distinguishes a leader that you can plug into a dysfunctional op, a high performance op, and that it's all going to regress to the mean of greatness. You know, it's interesting. So I'm a, I can be a high energy individual as well. And it's funny, I was talking with another entrepreneur about how like we go through this pattern of like the wins that fuel us, like they keep getting harder and harder, right? Like, so you sold your first account. Oh my goodness, like celebration, whatever, you're not making any money. Um, then you get to the thing where it's like certain account sizes that, that really excite you and then that doesn't get exciting anymore. It's certain amount, certain amount of accounts that you closed in a month, that doesn't get excited. Um, but like one of the things that I'm really good at is I'm able to pick the wins that really get me excited and because I am such a process driven person, I look for the thing I'm trying to fix or the thing I'm trying to optimize. And when I get it to that number, I am, I am a visibly excited person. I'm out in the office. I'm sitting there pointing at the screen, sitting there saying, you know, hell yeah, like look what you guys did. Oh, this yeah. is a record, blah, blah. And so it definitely is like something I don't think I intentionally do, but it's always moving the needle because that number won't be good enough next time. Right. The team's going to be looking for the next right. number that's going to, that's going to get elicit a reaction from mm -hmm. me. Not that they live to elicit it, but, um, but it's definitely something I'm able to go out and I can feel a visible change in the company uh, and the people when I'm out there celebrating some certain milestones that we've never hit before and just, you know, the excitement there. So it's a moving target. It's going to get harder and harder and harder, but I think that's the, that's the good thing about it is um, the, it's the thing that 
you know, got the team excited yesterday is not going to get them excited tomorrow. Yeah. Got to go to the next, got to so, go to the next brigade. So the constancy there is ambition, right? Mm -hmm. Is wanting more. It's just like fighting against complacency and always striving for the new goal. I love that. Um, when we talk about ambition and kind of motivating the team, there's so many different ways to reward. Some of those rewards are, are good ones, like we hit another sales goal. But another kind of reward could be like, um, nobody bothered me. Like we're, we're constantly motivating and rewarding with the, with the spoken and the, the unspoken. When you think about the, the communication in the team, one-on-ones, et cetera, what do you do to really engage with your team members to solicit the thoughts and the feedback that may not be made in public in a meeting to really like get into the hearts and minds of team members? You know, one of the things that's been an evolution in me is just understanding that uh, on my one-on-ones, not, not everybody reacts to the same stuff right and and that's where like the next evolution i think is as any leader is how do i sit there as an individual your direct report to me how do i sit there and know what's going to make you get excited to come to work every day it's going to be different than the mm -hmm. next person that walks into my office right it's going to be different than the next person and so how do i sit there and actually manage that i i'm able to sit there and keep putting the things in front of you that are the reason that you come to work early and you stay late you know the things that sit there and go that you're not going to be able to quit talking to your spouse about um, like, what am I going to be able to do that to put those things in front of you that are going to drive the, the business goals? And so um, I always used to have kind of a one size fits all management style, um, but I've definitely learned as I've evolved is that it's not. And I have, to, I have to be better with my input and output and understanding what makes certain people tick, what doesn't, and understanding that it changes from person to person. Um, so that's that's been the, the big transformation for me. I love that. So you use the word transformation. Let's just go with that, right? One of the things that I've found is that the journey of an entrepreneur in many ways is a journey into self. It's easy to identify the external barriers and bottlenecks, but in order to solve those, there's an internal capacity that has to be unlocked. That's how we, we, we grow and we learn and we change mm -hmm. over time. What else have you discovered? Like what were some of the... Um, mindset barriers that you had to work through in order to keep pursuing this ambition in order to make it possible? So I've, you know, as I was telling you earlier, like I even think about where I was at even a year ago. Like, you know, the amount that I've learned and, and the amount of stuff I can spew out that makes people think I know what I'm doing has increased, right? It's the baffling with brilliance, bedazzling with bullshit, the meter is moving, um, which is good. But it's, um, you know, the Malcolm Gladwell and his, you know, um, his book, uh, Outliers, was a really interesting read because it got me to understand or at least test the theory that time is what develops expertise. Mm -hmm. And so as we've gotten like more mentors, like we've gotten some high power mentors for Property Meld that have tons of hours, like you start seeing it and then you start exercising mm -hmm. the hours mm -hmm. and you realize that you're starting to get mm -hmm. really good at this thing. Right, I never went to school to do sales and marketing, mm -hmm. um, but I understand it thoroughly now. And why is that? Because I've exercised it, I've practiced the theories, mm -hmm. I've you know practiced different processes mm -hmm. and everything like that. Um, and so that's kind of the thing, you know, it's it's time and energy that you put into it. And I don't know if I'm answering your question. I kind of got off on a tangent, but well, so you're talking about this in terms of it being a craft. Self-awareness recognize that there's a meter, there's a spectrum. I'm somewhere on there, mm -hmm. and I pray to God that I'm not far towards the right in terms of competence, because that um, means I've capped out. There's right. more opportunity. I want to constantly have enough self-awareness to realize 
how there's way more room to grow, but that's somewhat linear. What's non-linear are the different ways that we view people that are just like, it's a radically different perspective shift. Like you just mm -hmm. mentioned a second ago, not everybody works or is incentivized or motivated the same way as me. Mm -hmm. Another way to put that is that there's more than one way to approach the work mm -hmm. and that the way that I do things isn't right, it's just my personal preference. Right. Like that would be the sort of kind of mindset or paradigm shift. And I guess that's what I was asking about is those types of, of experiences of like, what are some limitations that you have butted up against in terms of your own approach and leadership that you've had to pivot on? Um, you know, it's, uh... It's where do I not like have as much impact on too. Like one of the things that is the best feeling in the world as an entrepreneur is finding out somebody else can do something better than you. Mm -hmm. um, man, like we had our onboarding process and our support process. We, uh, we ended up getting somebody in there that, I mean, made it a heck of a lot better than I ever did. And that's like, that's a very empowering thing to sit there and go, I'm not the smartest person in the room, not that I thought I was, but at least in the company, I know everything. I know the customer super well, everything like that. And then I was able to hand something off and they did something way better than I could have, right? And so that's the evolution where it's like, hold on a second, well, if I can hand that off, yeah. when can I hand this off? When can I hand this off? Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that allows me to focus in my strong areas. Mm -hmm. There's definitely mm -hmm. some things that I'm not good at um, that I would rather avoid professionally if I could. Uh, but, but anyways, that was enlightening, um, in itself that I was really, really jacked up. And then once you start doing that, then you can start seeing scaling, yeah. right? You're not having to sit there. Yeah. I don't have to put in more hours right. to make the company grow. Right. I, I can just get the right people in places because it can be done. It's almost scary sometimes when you delegate and then this person that you bring on starts doing what you hired them to do, like making all these decisions <laughs> without any feedback or input, they're just like doing things and breaking things and, and kind of making it better. It's like, wow, yeah, like I meant to empower you, but I didn't know like you were going to move so fast, but right. that's just kind of how it works. Well, and I think too is like, I think even thinking about what does success mean for that role and then just starting there and then allowing a lot more of them to use their own mindset to say, hey, all right, like these are the metrics that matter. I don't care how you go get them, go get them. And again, we talk about competing objectives and we talk about salary and compensation. Like objectives are very much that way. These are the two numbers I care about more than anything else. Find a way to get those in the right place. Like you can do it however you want. Mm -hmm. And so then you allow a lot of freedom and, and at least in, in my management style, whether it's intentional or not, I'm, I'm a bit more hands off. I actually enjoy people that are a little bit more creative, a little self-motivated. I do not have to have my nose into everything. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, the, if I'm able to do that, it brings in the right people, they're the right people that work with me, and it ends up taking it off my plate a lot faster than this slow weaning off that sits there and says, now this is how I want it to do, this is how I want to do it, and slowly get them to start taking it over. It's like, no, this is what I care about. Identify what needs to be changed, and let's approve it and get it done. So last question along this line of leadership. What is the hardest part about your job? I would have to say setting and compensating correctly without making things um, competing interests. So the thing that I've, as I've gone through is I've set these objectives and then I found out that they compete with these ones. Mm -hmm. um, and how do you make 
perfect objectives in a departmental. Unintended um, consequences. Yeah, and so and so that's the thing where I'm sitting there going, I won't, uh, when it comes to objectives or the way I compensate, what, however you incentivize, like whatever your incentivization is, whatever your metrics you're grading success on, is like I've spent, I've learned to spend a lot more time trying to figure that out because I've learned that I can put in something that can cost something somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And so coming up with really powerful interconnected incentives are the thing that I'm I'm trying to continue to figure out and that I found to be very difficult mm -hmm. that sit there and go hey how do you, how do I get it to where it's not Peter Robin Paul mm -hmm. um, kind of thing so the buy-in that you're having to project is obviously within the company but there's outside the company and that's home life your family man correct mm -hmm. yeah so one of the interesting thing to me talking to successful CEOs that have not had a liquidity event, i.e. having sold, is managing that conversation inside the house around the gap between saying, hey, our lifestyle, our income is this, but the company, the, the value of the company is rapidly accreting, et cetera. How long have you been in this venture for? Uh, this will be my fifth year. Fifth year, okay, that's that's a good slog, you know? And that's part of the internal conversation around, honey, we're, we're rich on paper, right. you know? Like, now, has our personal income changed? Not so much. In fact, I'm trying to pump everything back into right. the company. People don't talk about a lot about the spousal relationship, but like, What's what's that like to kind of to kind of manage what you need on the family side to be able to do what you do in the work context? So my uh, so even just started off, my co-founder actually sent me a, an essay or an article written by somebody. I'm trying to remember who. I, I hate not being able to cite who it is, but basically was either be single or have somebody bought into it as much as you are. Yeah. Um, and you definitely understand as you go down the road, um, you realize the pressures that it can put on because you can imagine. Um, not being able to sleep at night. Someone who's constantly, their mind is constantly somewhere else. You're never here with me. You know, where are you? Uh, you know, why don't we have time hanging out with the kids? And why so, are you talking to yourself? <clears throat> yeah, why, why are you talking to yourself? Why do you got to take that call tonight? Why do you got to call this weekend? Um, you know, so all these things. And so that was the thing, I mean, you know, my wife is really great at is like being bought in, like from the day one. I mean, she believed in me but as well as understanding where it is. Now, fast forward, that, that certain spark, that motivation, that excitement only lasts so long and then you gotta keep feeding it. Um, and as I talked to you, you know, as we had our conversations in the past, you know, it's all about getting them to the next step and providing validation, yeah, right. right? So I can say, oh, this is what it's, this is what it's worth, this mm -hmm. is what retirement's gonna look like, mm -hmm. sunshine and rainbows, and right? And they sit there and go, you're a salesperson and I know it, um, so what's real skinny? So when you start getting, uh, you know, and this is not everybody's path, and so I don't necessarily know how to, how to put it for everyone, but you know, you get external validation. Mm -hmm. um, growth is a big one, like being able to say, no, no, we're, we have this many more companies, this many more doors, you know, and you're getting to see the rapid growth. Like that's validation to say, hey, no, it's happening. Um, when you have external parties validate your company mm -hmm. through valuation, mm -hmm. it's like, no, it's not fake, it's real, there's real people putting money based on this. And so you're able to do that. And then it's a constant iteration. I'm just probably like anybody who deals with spouses, like, you know, where, where am I missing? What do I need to do better on? Yeah. And same thing as I do at work is what am I missing? What am I doing better? And just being in a, willing to sit there and go, if I don't get this right, this stuff is going to be really, really difficult. Mm -hmm. um, so anyways, that's, that's, there's been no shortage of those conversations.
Hey, Daniel Craig here with Profit Coach. You've probably heard Jordan talk on the podcast about the NARPM accounting standards that we authored on behalf of NARPM. This groundbreaking initiative standardizes financial reporting for the property management industry, and we're committed to helping as many companies as possible get on the standard this year. If you'd like to get converted, we'd love to help with one of our two conversion packages. The first gets you converted on a go-forward basis only, and the second actually converts you on a historical basis going back two full years, and that comes with a comprehensive financial performance report that provides a deep-dive analysis of your financial performance in over 30 financial KPIs and compares your performance to key industry financial benchmarks. Go to pmprofitcoach.com forward slash NAS for details. And be sure to mention this ad for a special 10% off discount. That's pmprofitcoach.com forward slash NAS. Yeah, man, the support from the spouse, it's like like the uh, unspoken infrastructure, right? I feel like it's like this concrete and rebar on the inside that actually allows for all this stuff to be possible. I'm personally super grateful for that. It's made a huge difference for me. Now at this point, let's actually transition to talk about property management and maintenance. Okay. Because I want to talk to you about the dystopian disruption future that sometimes gets put out there. These tech companies and the money are going to come in and all the small operators are going to go away and get ground into dust. Walk me through your take on disruption. You're kind of participating in it, by the way, mm-hmm. from, from the inside. Mm-hmm. You would be the, um, the internal disruption that is enhancing the SMB capabilities. But the disruption, so you're not unfamiliar with this disruption narrative. How much do you buy in or not buy into that whole storyline? To, to the rollout? To the, the whole idea, the whole idea of disruption due to outside capital coming in, <clears throat> transformation of the industry. So, so anytime there's more opportunity, like for revenue to be generated, more money's gonna flood in. That's the, that's the beauty of it. And uh, you know, I think there's no shortage of it. Like you see, even, even like five years ago, the number of vendors servicing um, the property management field has drastically went up. The amount that multiples that um, prop tech or real estate tech are getting for you know acquisitions or whatever into real estate tech space. Like, there's clearly some people seeing some things to say we're willing to put some money in this because we this is going to be a hard push. Um, so that tells me that that it really is like our, the next few years are going to be very telling. Um, you know. As I take a step back, and I'm not a property manager, but obviously I service a lot of them and I pay attention to the space, Like I do think there's going to be this this competing thing where it's going to be these people with a lot of money are going to come in and try and, and try and take out these SMBs, you know, um, that you're going to sit there and go, I've got more resources, I've got better tech, I've got better processes, better infrastructure, better networks, and I'm going to come in and attempt to deliver a better service at potentially the same price, mm-hmm. possibly even lower. Um, and so, you know, the kind of my messaging has been, and I mean, it, it aligns with what we're doing with helping people reduce costs and, and managing is like, the way that it was working 10, 15 years ago is not the same. You know, and you can even take property management firms, they're able to exit now. But you think about it, um, I was listening to Andy, Andy Probst, um, one time he was talking, he's like, you know, five years ago, you were a property management firm who passed down the business to somebody. Mm-hmm. Well, now it's a liquid asset. It's, I mean, it's, it's pretty liquid. Yeah. You can sit there and get out. They're starting to get multiples. There's the new accounting standards starting to roll out. What's that right. a precursor to? That means faster transactions for acquisitions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so there's definitely some shaping up that's going to be that you have to figure out how to optimize. 
um, or there's the potential that you could get beat. Now, it's all going to be dependent on markets and how strong the players are, but I, I think it's a real threat that, that property managers, like how we've traded the business maybe 10, 15 years ago, like we need to start thinking, how am I going to build a moat for my own business? I'm going to do it through superior service. I'm going to do it through um, great customer engagement, um, great retention, great return on investments, ensuring that my investors are making really solid money. Um, it's, it's going, the game is going to have to be upped in the next coming years. In your opinion, is efficiency and cost savings the same thing as improved service quality? No. So I do a talk on soft costs of maintenance. Um, it's, it's, you know, there's fixed costs, like the amount of, of money that I've got uh, to manage my maintenance operation, right? But as we're learning more and more, the renter is kind of becoming this, um, this desired commodity. Um, that it's like, you know, we want, we want renters. It's occupancy. no longer, yeah, occupancy rate, but it's no longer, I'm building for people who can't afford homes. I'm building for people who don't want to live in them. Mm -hmm. So, so we're chasing them, right? We're improving our, you know, our reviews drive 86% of, you know, 86% of people use reviews, um, over a conversation with peers. And so like we now we want to pay attention to that. And so uh, there's, there's not only that in your cost per acquisition for new residents and new investors, but there's also the cost to turn. Um, there's how much money your investor is going to lose. There's how much it's going to cost to do a move out inspection. How much is going to cost to, um, to you know, fight the disputes uh, for your deposit. You know, now you got to coordinate cleaning and changing out of stuff, which the owner's got to pay for again. Um, you got to remarket the property. You got to reshow it. You got to move in inspection. Like, there's a whole bunch of things in there to where service plays like a real impact to your bottom line. And so the people that figure that out in, in coordination with managing their fixed costs are gonna, they're gonna have the best opportunity for profit margin, which is gonna mean they've got the most leeway in terms of pricing and remaining a profitable company. Got it, wow, that was a, okay, yeah. That was, Sorry, that was a mouthful. Is that a lot? <laughs> is that a lot? <laughs> that was a mouthful. So what I hear in that is that there is a significant opportunity for companies to leverage the efficiency into things that very much can be better service quality if there is the vision for that. When we think about why maintenance is such a hairy problem, like what, I believe it was Buildium that released a report not that long ago and it was a survey. Surveys you kind of take with, the, with a grain of salt. It's not really that meaningful data, except when it is a reflection of of sentiment mm -hmm. and this survey was really clear that maintenance was at the top mm -hmm. of the list of the pain points why is maintenance such a ongoing pain point in your opinion I think it's because it's more nuanced and there's more parties um, you think about it so when you're doing a leasing transaction or you're doing a showing transaction it's between your leasing agent or whoever's handling that and the prospect um, you know, and so anyways, there's a very linear relationship between I need to get you in the door, let's have our sales process, and so the process becomes very linear. Um, maintenance breaks out into, can kind of what can be a little bit of a hornet's nest, you know, you've got not only the resident that requests the maintenance and you've got the property manager managing, but you've got not to exceed limits of owners, you're working with vendors and their capacity limits and can they accept it in that time period. So, so if you look at, you know, a flowchart diagram of a maintenance process versus a leasing process, Spaghetti. it's all over the place. Yeah. And so I think that's why people have had the, the biggest challenge on trying to figure that out because it's like there's no real great way to mm -hmm. sit there and navigate that. 
especially not as easy when it comes to onboarding a new owner or onboarding a new resident where it's pretty linear. Here it's you've got potentially four, maybe even five parties involved um, to get something done from start to finish. You know, I think it's interesting within maintenance coordination, the fact that some property managers kind of act like, or the vibe that you get from some folks is that <clears throat> there's some buffer or some distance between them and the, the vendor, right? Mm -hmm. As if the property manager can be like, well, hey, we coordinated it, but you know, if, if they did a bad job, I guess that's a separate company, mm -hmm. that's not us. The reality is the consumer, like all consumers, they want the outcome. They're not buying a drill, they're buying a hole. Yeah. The consumer wants to know the job was well done, and if it breaks anywhere along the value chain, you as the property manager are kind of reliable for the whole thing. What is the approach or the advice that you give folks around finding great vendors and managing to, to excellence in a way that really does take responsibility for the outcome and not just like a subset of, of delivering that outcome? So a lot of it is um, education, and I know that's kind of a vague term, but you know, there's a lot of things that even historically we didn't really know about maintenance. We didn't know what drove a positive versus a negative experience. We didn't know the different variables and different levers that would determine whether an experience is positive or negative. Um, you know, that you can sit there and adjust and lever. Um, the one thing that's becoming very, very clear as we go into the data and we dig into it is it's time. Time is king. Um, so a residence, if a repair sits on, and there's, there's different variations of what speed of repair you have to do certain different uh, types of repair, but speed is king. So if you sit there and if you're a property management firm and you allow somebody else to dictate the speed, they're going to go at their speed, right? But they don't, you know, a lot of the time the education is, and that's why I do a lot of the soft costs, is if I'm a property management firm and I just say, just deal with it, you know, and we hear it, like just deal with it the negative reviews are going to go on your company, not on theirs. It's going to cost you cost per acquisition for new investors. It's going to cause you um, probably decreased quality in resident quality because picky residents are going to choose the 4.7s, right? Um, it's going to cost you there. It's going to cost you investors because you're sitting there losing residents. 31% of non-renewals are due to maintenance issues. It's the number one behind rent price. Like, so it's educating and say, no, you need to care. You need to care about this because it's costing you money. Mm -hmm. um, and then once you start making that, then it start putting in systems and places of follow up and ensuring that the speed happens, the, the ensuring the resident is satisfied. Mm -hmm. And then you can start delving down mm -hmm. into what you know, what vendors do I need to start changing out? Which ones do I need to start getting more work to? So this is kind of for a free market response. Like you fix the problem by connecting the dots between the outcomes for you and the outcomes for that client. It's the alignment mm -hmm. of the two interests, realizing if you take full responsibility, if you go all in on delivering, delivering amazing service, it's going to yield a lift in the outcomes that directly support your business model. Mm -hmm. You brought up getting that check, being motivated by that financial incentive. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the connection between maintenance and bottom line revenue. What we know from the benchmarking study that we released sometime back now is that at the end of the day, the average property management company is not making a ton of money with property management as a standalone. Mm -hmm. There are all kinds of reasons and stories as to why you can or you cannot make money with maintenance or without maintenance. I've talked to very large companies that have said things like, I don't know how you can make money on property management without maintenance, and I've heard the exact same thing said in reverse. Right. What, we, what I'm really clear on is that maintenance represents a significant 
uh, bottom line opportunity for folks that are willing to embrace some kind of, of an upcharge to have the margin to guarantee and take accountability for that outcome. There are two ways to look at margin. It's either all about me, what I'm gonna get and, and what I'm gonna take home and what I'm gonna eat, or you look at margin as a way to provide a higher level quality of service. How do you navigate that conversation when talking through clients about the opportunity of whether or not to, to tr actually try and maintenance, uh, monetize and make money on maintenance? So, so it will come back to the fact that there is margin built into the property management fees that is important to maintenance too, right? So there's other things that I talked about. Everybody's got, you know, I've got my business development and I've got sales and I've got marketing. Well, if you keep losing residents, you keep losing owners, it's costing you there. So there's like a, there's a place where maintenance can um, help improve the bottom line of what you would consider just conventional property management fees, right? Um, but on the maintenance aspect, kind of like you'd mentioned, I mean, um, you know, the uh, property managers sell to investors to handle maintenance, um, right? I mean, that's what they do, especially you look at these accidental landlords and everything like that. Uh, you know, if you manage it well, meaning you manage it to a high level of quality, you do so without, um, uh, you do so without a, a ton of fixed labor costs. Um, you do so with, if you are doing internal technicians, like you've got their utilization rate up or their billable rate up, like if you can manage the right KPIs, you will make money. The thing that we're kind of realizing as we go into this, um, you know, further and further with data is like there are only a couple of metrics that matter to make money in maintenance. Like if you have your own internal technician, there's how many hours that I bill for, how many hours that I pay out for that technician. Mm -hmm. Like that's the gold standard. And a lot of utilization. Utilization, right? Well, and I would even say billable utilization rate, right? Because right. I can put a number of hours on a ticket and then it might not end up what's totally billed from the owner. Right. And so making sure that you've got certain KPIs built and you follow those pretty stringently, you'll make money. Um, but this is tough to do. How do you keep people busy? It becomes your UPS now, where you've got a you've got a logistics game. Where how do I keep the utilization rate up of every single employee? And that's something we're continuing to work on uh, to help clients. But yeah, it's there's opportunity both in property management, and then as you've seen and we've seen, um, the people that do maintenance well and and do upcharges on maintenance, they will make a lot of money on maintenance. Yeah, exactly. So with the maintenance side of things, yeah, you can have the techs and you can have the labor, but you can also make money without the techs and the labor, which arguably is even better, right? Anytime yep. you can have the profit without carrying all the costs and the overhead and the oversight, a lot of folks have hangups around that and let the how get in the way of actually facilitating the outcome. How you get that check through a vendor marketing fund, through a charge per work order, charge the owner, the tenant. I mean, there's so many different ways that you can skin that cap, but it's the will to actually uh, get the check mm -hmm. and get the dollar to be able to deliver the kind of service that needs to get done. I just feel like that the industry as a whole is not fully leveraging this opportunity. I would agree. So you can follow like your 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 basic economics price and demand curves, right? Um, you know, with I think a lot of the hangups for people, and this is totally anecdotal, but um, is the fact that. I'm scared to increase the rates any bit because I'm going to lose owners. Right. Well, that may be, but as long as your price to increase owners on that is ahead, like it's a good business decision and chances are it's mm -hmm. less work on the mm -hmm. property management mm -hmm. side as well. 
And so there's a feel out, right? There's this, there's this uh, inflection point where the maximum of the two are and it's where the savvy, the savvy business owner sits there and keeps creeping that up and finding out where that number is to where it starts losing more than mm. it's worth mm. and then stopping there and saying, hey, I'm going to do this. And that might be a moving target, mm -hmm. but that's, you know, there, there's, there's squeeze. You do, at the end of the day, what you're talking about, it's called math. <laughs> For those of you listening right now, if you are using pricing as the lever to sell and market, it means that you're not good at sales and marketing. Yeah. Like if you fundamentally view pricing as being the primary deterministic thing of your ability to grow, you're solving for the wrong variable, for the wrong outcome. You can use pricing as, as a lever, and yes, it will impact. If you drop your fees from 10% to 5%, no doubt that's gonna have an impact. But is that the right lever as opposed to actually becoming competent at the discipline of sales and marketing? I think that's where a lot of folks fall down is they, they're so quick to go to pricing as being the lever mm -hmm. to affect growth as opposed to just the primary discipline of of being competent at sales and marketing. I would say too, one of the things that you have to make the assumption on when pricing is the thing that's going to determine is when all other things, all else, all other things are equal. Mm -hmm. And that's where you can't allow that to happen, right? As a property manager, it's a differentiator, right? Um, it's a true commodities game. Yeah, it's, if it's a true commodities game, which it's not, it's what's your focus? What are you trying to do? You want sustained revenue you, or, you know, like there, there's different owners that you're targeting, but the, if all other things are not equal, then price is not the, the lever. Um, now, obviously, it can be, um, but I've never been a uh, just in, in general. Um, I've never been a stickler for saying you need to lowering cost. Lowering cost is how you get market share. Because mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about it as well, if you make more money, then you have more money for distribution of your services. Right. Like so, you're a property manager, and if I'm able to maximize my revenues, that means I'm able to spend more money in sales, marketing. Like I can sit there and go, and I can go get more business than potentially somebody who's got half the rates mm -hmm. because they're just mm -hmm. scraping by, mm -hmm. and they've got no um, liquid income to sit there and go after. Dude, that that's worth bears <laughs> repeating, man. If the lifetime value grows. You can throw more money at the thing that pri that should primarily be determinative, and that is that sales marketing function. Cost per acquisition. Yeah, if you're thinking, you know, my sales marketing is not great right now, but I can't afford a BDM. You know, oh man, a uh, a great SEO campaign costs three grand a month. I can't afford that. Mm -hmm. You can't afford it because of your economic engine. So mm -hmm. if you need to modify that in order to be able to afford it, that's a conversation worth happening. <clears throat> Yeah. And it's not going to service the entire market. You know, that may not work if, if your average rent is at $800. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of the market that really underweights the growth function. These are SMB problems, right? Mm -hmm. Historically, SMBs buy into the lie that if you build it, they will come. Mm -hmm. It's all about service. If I have the best product, right. I'm going to win. I know you know that's not the case. There's so many landlords in need of professional property management. It is to me the widest market that's available. It's more exciting than people that don't automate maintenance. So it's like, I'm sitting there going, no, go get them. Um, there's tons of them, right? I don't know the numbers off the top of my head. Is it something like 40 million or something or self-made? Like, or it's like small, crazy. like something small. Yeah. Um, that sit there and self-manage. I'm like, that is your prospective customer base. Um, whereas the number of single families is like somewhere between five and seven million or something like mm -hmm. that. It's like, it's so much blue ocean right now. So yeah, a lot of it is distribution. Like how do you maximize distribution? Um, and I would even say too, like 
you know, for property like SMBs, like it still works. Build the model. Like as as a business, how am I how many doors do I need to get a month and how am I going to get them and how much is it going to cost me? Mm. Build the model and mm -hmm. adjust it, right? Mm. If you're expecting somebody to sit there and acquire new doors with zero dollars. Um, you're the only business in the world that's going to be able to do that. So making sure that you have that modeled out, making sure that when you plug that model and assume your management rates that the math all checks out, like model it out. Um, now I know it's easier said than done, but you know, we built our model in Excel and you know, and it gets more and more sophisticated, we start somewhere and says, this is, this is what we need to do to grow. These are my ambitions and goals. Yeah. How am I going to get there? Where, yeah. Where's the money going to go to make that happen? The intention with finance cannot be understated. Peeling back the onion and asking the question, I've got an idea, but can I, can I model that out? Mm -hmm. Can I peel it back one layer, one layer, one layer? I do want to talk about focus, Ray. I want to talk about that on the level. Here, here's where I'm at professionally. My view of myself today is that I am talent. Like a star athlete or like a, like a singer, I embrace the idea of selective incompetence. I mm -hmm. want to be world class at this, mm -hmm. and I accept the fact that that means that I'm going to be some level of mediocre to incompetent about a whole lot of other stuff. A decade ago, I would have thought that's irresponsible. The CEO needs to be good at everything. He's got to kill it with accounting, finance, marketing, sales, uh, product development. I run a software company. I had these delusions of grandeur, of, of excellence at everything. I'm not there right now. What that requires is I need to get clear with my team that my focus has to be protected. I'm mm -hmm. trying to focus on a small subset of things in a world of distraction and I'm kind of like the firefighter who's also an arsonist, right? Mm -hmm. I'm constantly creating new distractions for myself through biz dev. How do you handle and maintain focus with so much going on? Um, fortunately for me, and I don't know how you handle this when these don't align, um, is the fact that my, the things that I not only enjoy doing and that I'm good at is also what the company needs. Not everybody gets that, right? Like. Sales may not be your gift. Business development might not totally. be your gift, but you know that you need that there. And so, you know, then you start looking for those people. Um, for me, it's, it's about like, you know, there's things that I don't personally love to do that I avoid professionally that I still do because I recognize that it's critical to the company. Mm -hmm. um, but as many of those other things that I don't like to do and don't have massive impact and they take up time, I mean, my, my goal is I try and get rid of that and I try and stay pretty disciplined about getting rid of something at a, at a pretty frequent basis. Um, you know, and for, for uh, property management companies, we're sitting there going through and they're not good at sales and they're not good at whatever, like that, that's the thing. You, you need to almost identify where your core strengths and where you need to be spending your time on and where your gifts are. Because if you, if you suck at sales and you can't find a way to connect and relate, mm -hmm. do, not, mm -hmm. do not go and do sales. Like, you need to sit there and go, all right, now what position do I need to hire? Like based on what role and responsibilities need to happen, what position do I need to hire? Mm -hmm. Then you can break that down into what skill sets do they need to be good at? Then you can start building questions around how to ask people. Anyways, there's a, there's a whole HR process there, but it's first the analysis kind of like you said is what am I not good at and what does the company need? Get those off your plate so that way you can focus on where your gift is. My gift if I, you know. If I unique ability, yeah man, what is it? My unique ability? Uh, I think it's my ability to connect a solution with a product, and that's not only just how to sell something, but how to how to how to transfer what an industry needs. 
to make sure that it gets into product. So, so what I heard there was actually converting a problem into a solution, connecting those dots. Is sure. that Let's, I like that because that does, that encompasses sales. I think where our product has gone and, and why it's so popular has been because we we're getting the right feedback yeah. and getting it to customers and everything. So for non-product people, that sounds kind of obvious, right? Like, well, yeah, of course you would build something people would want to use, but there's yeah. actually so much nuance because the tendency oh, is to do the opposite, is to take a solution and to try and overlap, <laughs> overlay that onto the problem. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, uh, I don't know how many companies I've seen go down um, that started with a solution <laughs> and to go and find the problem that it will go solve. Uh, so it's, if there's one thing I've learned in the last four or five years, I've seen friends and stuff do startups and they come down. Um, that's that's what it is. And those conversations, what those conversations kind of look like is explaining why the customer is an idiot because he doesn't get why the, <laughs> right. he doesn't see why the product is so right. great. But the, the flip side of that is chasing your own tail and following the market to the degree that you're willing to allow the customer entirely dictate your product roadmap. Talk uh, to me about that tension. So, um, so it's always it's always difficult. We want we want the customers to be happy. Like we've got a very vocal uh, customer base who's like very you know property meld you know over overarchingly it's a very popular product. Um, we've got a saying though like we. You know, one of the things that we believe has made us successful is we've not followed any system before us. Um, I didn't come from property management. I was able to come in with a fresh set of eyes. I understand, you know, um, you know, kind of lean philosophy. I understand process, automation, and all those things, and I was able to apply that to a problem. There's plenty of times we sit there and we go and we get something and go, is this going to reduce time or add more stuff? Like, and if it's not reducing time and it's not improving the experience for whether it be the resident vendor, technician, or property manager, it's not in our thing and we, and we try in our best way to sit there and say that's not what we're going for. Um, and it is tough. It's, it's a discipline um, to make sure, they call it scope creep, right? Mm -hmm. You can make a monster of a system that is going to take three years to learn and once you learn where all the buttons and how they interact but also more but stuff it does can, everything but it does everything and more stuff can break and so it's yeah. you know it's it's a company philosophy and we have something um, it, it you know and it's it's the customer is not always right but their problem is always real mm -hmm. so if they're experiencing pain like yeah. how do we train That's our people it. to sit there and go all right no, this is what they're saying, but I want you to dig. I want you to find out. So that's what we try and train like our customer success team is like, when they're having that conversation, like, no, no, I know you want that box or I know you want that thing, but let's figure out what's happening. Oh, this is happening. Oh, this got lost or whatever. So there's a transparency issue. So how do we sit there and find a way to go do that thing for them? So they don't have another thing to enter. So they don't have another box to type in, but they get, it just happens. I right. totally dig that. What you're talking about is the nuance <clears throat> in the conversation around convention versus configuration. And mm -hmm. for those non-software folks, they would recognize that when they look within any um, any competitive vertical, like let's say the leasing automation software, you got Showmojo on one end, you got um, Rently and Tenant Turn on the other end, and that represents a spectrum between on the one side configuration, being able to tool it to do whatever you want versus convention. Convention works on the basis of having a strong opinion about how it must be done, mm -hmm. which means you can't abdicate the product vision to your customer. You have to take all that well of feedback, that messy, unrefined, unsynthesized feedback and convert it into something actually usable and that you can you can believe in. Mm -hmm. So for you, what are the core tenets of maintenance of what you believe about 
um, how it should be be done and how it should be weighted that that guide that approach where you are kind of uh, taking the customers you're holding the customer's hand and kind of leading them with some vision. So when we first started Property Meld, and I'll just say like we we I spent time with about 25 different property management firms, and one thing that I learned is there was not a consistent process, and even if there was a consistent process, there was not consistent execution. Um, the reason that's important is because like when we sat there and we came out with this, I mean a lot of people sit there and go like, I know I need to follow, but when do I need to follow up? I know I need to touch base, but when do I touch base? So like, kind of our philosophy has been like, let's find the story that data backs up the most and sit there and go, this is the best one. You know, we look at metrics and KPIs, so resident satisfaction is a big one. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a lagging indicator, right? It's a lagging indicator on what's happening in the product. Um, but, like we said, resident satisfaction is really important. Then we start understanding, well, what are the drivers of that? What are the leading indicators of that? And we said, well, the time of repair, the time to get a repair done. I mean, and so we sat there and we said, all right, from our product, like what's slowing down? What's spending time getting repaired on? So like a lot of our works and tweaks have been behind the scenes. Most mm -hmm. customers don't even know it. We cut our median uh, uh, time to get a repair done in half in 2018. That's shocking. Like nobody knows that. But it's like, that's the, that's the thing. And if, happy, if you have happy residents, wow. and then another thing is we try and get people to not spend as much time on our platform is another metric. We follow those two. And so if anything we do, is that going to help with either of these? Not spending as much time in the platform? Mm -hmm. that's, tell me, but that's pretty kind of interesting. That's pretty counterintuitive, right? So, so <laughs> if you know anything about software, you'd be familiar with this concept of DAOs, daily active users, yeah. for app companies, engagement. Generally for software, dude, engagement is what it's all about. So tell me more about that. Well, I mean, so if our goal is to make maintenance better for residents and it's to make it easier on property management companies, the easier on property management companies, the reason it's burdensome is time and process. But let's just say you've got property mode and so now it's you got people working it. How do you make it to where they can consistently manage higher and higher amounts of doors with ease, right? Uh, allow fluctuations and mm. seasonality. And not only that, like we talked about these people coming in, these large companies that have these systems and everything in place, like this is the defense. This is, how do I take my marginal cost of maintenance coordination down mm. to the ground? Mm. Um, and so when we sit there and we look at it, we say, hey, like, how do I sit there and make it to where that one person can perform at a high level and they can keep growing and growing and growing and growing and then we can just say, hey, no, like they can just keep going. We're just gonna keep making it. So that's what the spending less time in the product actually means. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that they're not gonna hop in the product, but how much time do they gotta spend in a day on, on the platform? I dig it, man. So we've been in conversation here for a while, talking about how we can use some disparate data sets between the uh, the data we have with Profit Coach versus the data that you have with Property Meld. We're going to be doing a kind of a joint presentation, you and Danny, mm -hmm. on PM Grow. Part of that is looking at like what is the what are the smallest number of metrics you could focus on. You've got a bunch of operational data, mm -hmm. but what I know on the finance side is that unit economics clarifies what's happening. So like the cost per work order right. is something we've talked about for some mm -hmm. time. Ideally, if property meld is really earning its keep, mm -hmm. it would meaningfully influence this cost per work order, yeah, correct? Absolutely. So that would be something that for me, like I really think that more companies should get focused on getting clarity around that. So instead of having conversations around the door, because the door is such a disappointing 
uh, heuristic and guiding number. Like how many how many doors can a property manager manage? How many doors can a maintenance quarter manage? That's kind of interesting, but there's a level deeper than that. Yeah. So like it's how old's my portfolio? How what's the in, you know what's the demographics of my renters? Like how many service issues are they going to submit? Like we shouldn't judge all portfolios the same, right? right? And that's where like you kind of talk about the dollar per service issue or the dollar per work order, dollar per mel to include my own nomenclature. Fair enough. Um, is going to be the thing that says whether you're good or you're not, right? right? Across um, Section Eight and high end housing, exactly. And whatever. Exactly. How much work? Because you know, at, this, at the end of the day, someone's got to touch that. They got to troubleshoot it. They got to dispatch it. They got to follow up. They got to ensure it gets done. They got to ensure the resident's satisfied on every single one. However many that property generates is is a uh, is a you know it's it's exclusive to that property. It can be a different in that portfolio set versus this portfolio set. Um, so yeah, it really does come down to how can we eliminate as many variables as possible to say this is what you base your success on in terms of coordination. Man, it's exciting stuff. There's a bright future. I'm excited for the presentation that you're going to do at PM Grow. I want to close the interview asking the same question I ask every single guest. Ray Heston, in your opinion, is entrepreneurship born or bred? Ooh, gosh dang, I should have been prepped for this question. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I think it's bread, personally. I think, uh, I think you know, you look at you know all the conditioning we do to say you go to work, you do the nine to five, you go home, you're supposed to have your pension, you're supposed to do things, the world's going to take care of you. Like, you know, that's conditioning. Like, I, I think we're all born entrepreneurs and we are conditioned to be workers. Um, so that being said, not everybody has risk tolerance, not everybody has the thing, they might enjoy it, and so it really is a choice. I don't think it's you can be an entrepreneur or you can't. Um, it's you start there and you want to continue to be, and based on your conditioning, where are you going? So you don't think you got any, you don't think you were born with any special juice, man? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't know, man. I, I, kinda, I would definitely <laughs> wait towards the boring side. I think that entrepreneurial giftings can be flexed up to a degree with training, but I think the greats, man, I think the true greats, I think the, I agree I think with the jobs, the Edisons. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, there's people that are, that are born for greatness and they have this, this zealous desire to solve a big problem that nobody else has and you cannot, you cannot train it. Can most people be entrepreneurs? I, I think so. Mm. I think we're born there, but you're right. The greats are segmented. And yet entrepreneurial thinking can be taught and learned. Well, let's follow Ray Hespin for the next decade and see if he is or is not one of the greats. Between now and then, I'll see you at PM Grow. Thanks for coming through, man. Hey, thanks. Appreciate it, Jordan.